I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about AUKUS, and we're going to learn what AUKUS is, we have with us Dr. Charles Adele, who is a senior advisor at CSIS and our inaugural Australia chair. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. I'm happy to talk AUKUS all day and all night uh, right now. So AUKUS is an, an acronym that's thrown around D.C. all the time and certainly in foreign policy circles when it comes to Asia Pacific. Tell us what AUKUS actually is. Yeah. So first of all, let's spell out the acronym, right? AUKUS, Australia, United Kingdom, United States. Uh, it's this trilateral defense cooperation pact between those three nations to work together to enhance uh, all of their individual and collective security capabilities. But the thing that's made headlines is what got rolled out this past week, right? That the first initiative that they're going to roll out together is to find a way to get nuclear-powered, conventionally armed submarines to the Australians. So that was what was rolled out in San Diego. But this is only the tip of the iceberg or the tip of the submarine, right? That this is supposed to be an initiative that will deliver a lot of other things as well. So, you know, in one sense, it's a very narrow defense pact, right? That is going to provide submarines, nuclear powered submarines to the Aussies. Which is a big deal in and of itself. Which is an enormous deal in and of itself. These are much more powerful, much more stealthy with, you know, greater range assets than conventional submarines. There are only six nations in the world which possess them, and not all of them are in the same class. So this is a huge deal, not to mention that acquiring nuclear-powered submarines is kind of part and parcel with this fundamental shift that we see going on within Australia to a much more forward-leaning, forward-engaged defense policy. It's different than almost anything they've ever done before. So you're right. It's a really big deal. But it's almost a bigger deal for the other two partners as well. Because it's not just about subs, right? This is about strategic convergence between the UK, the US, and Australia. Kind of all with the idea that by working together, by increasing their technological cooperation, by driving for the industrial capacity of all three nations, that they can all become safer and end up figuring out a way to begin stabilizing a very badly destabilized region. So, Charlie, what happened actually at this leaders meeting on Monday in San Diego and what are we going to see going forward? Yeah. So, look, when AUKUS was first announced back in September of 2021, with a lot of secrecy beforehand, we were told that submarines would happen at some point in the future. But you have to understand that this is like the reverse of how we normally do big announcements, right? Normally in statecraft and diplomacy, you figure everything out and then you have a big announcement. This time we announced it and then said, by the way, we have to figure out how and if we can even do this. So the first thing that happened under AUKUS, you know, back a year and a half ago was a decision that they were going to spend 18 months in kind of very intense negotiations between the three countries, figuring out what would be the optimal pathway to providing this submarine. Because Australia has no nuclear powered submarines, has no industry to support it. So what we heard on Monday was they announced a surprising kind of rollout of what this would look like and how we could get them. Uh, Look, I say surprising because it's going to happen much faster than many people had anticipated, and there are going to be 
more moving parts to this than I think almost anyone had expected, which raises the complexity of this too. Okay, so beyond nuclear submarines, what other ways will AUKUS arm Australia? Okay, well, we know that initiative number one, said President Biden, is these nuclear-powered submarines. When AUKUS was first stood up, they also said, by the way, we'll have something going on in the advanced capabilities, advanced technological capabilities, space two. And they quickly thereafter named that pillar two. That's been a bit of a moving target because when they first announced it, they laid out four different areas where they wanted to cooperate in cyber, in AI, in quantum, and in UUVs, unmanned underwater vehicles. But since that initial announcement, uh, it's grown from four to actually eight different areas, actually sometimes 10, depending on how you count. Uh, Hypersonics and counter hypersonics are now in there as well. A slew of other things. You know, the the reason that this was put into is because this is supposed to be much broader than just submarines, but also submarines take a while to get there. So some of these other areas were supposed to be able to come online faster than the subs to begin providing deterrence. Now, what's interesting, though, is when we heard the announcement, Andrew, they didn't say anything about Pillar 2, because frankly, the bandwidth to figure out the submarines have kind of overloaded the circuits. So now we're going to begin moving forward with Pillar 2. So, Charlie... You know, war is a messy business, and we're seeing that firsthand right now in Ukraine. You know, this feels to a lot of listeners, I'm sure, to be a little bit more abstract. But on Tuesday, China's foreign ministry spokesman said during a press briefing that, quote, the latest joint statement from the United States, UK and Australia demonstrates that the three countries, for the sake of their own geopolitical interests, completely disregard the concerns of the international communities and are walking further and further down the path of error and danger. What did that mean to you? A couple of different things. So first of all, look, same old, same old. This is what the Chinese have been saying for a while. They obviously do not like this. In fact, I could quote you even better. The, you know, the Global Times, I think today said that Australia is acting like a guinea pig that pays money for U.S. interests and its own risks. I have no clue what that means, but we can take, I think, it from Beijing that they are unhappy. Yeah. Look, that, that shouldn't surprise us. On top of being unhappy, we can also note that from the very beginning of this announcement, the Australians have said in no way, shape, or form were they seeking to acquire nuclear weapons, simply nuclear-powered submarines, two very different things. The Chinese have consistently been kind of muddying the waters on purpose, uh, kind of pushing disinformation out around Southeast Asia and elsewhere too, trying to make sure that there's a real drag on this from everyone. But look, how do I respond to this? I mean, not with amusement, because these are not amusing things, but, you know, this is the pot calling the kettle black to the nth degree. I mean, the fact that Beijing is concerned about destabilizing activities and people heading down the wrong path. I mean, the reason you have AUKUS in the first place is because China has undertaken this explosive growth of its military. It's kept a lot of it opaque, and then it's used that military to lean on, intimidate, coerce, and sometimes attack neighboring states. That is the only reason that AUKUS happened. I mean, when we get even more specific, the Chinese have rolled out something like 15 nuclear-powered submarines, oftentimes carrying nuclear-tipped weapons over the past two decades. They're putting so much money in there, and they're the ones that really have, again, been the progenitors behind this. But one thing that I'd like to add here is that, you know, it might sound abstract, but if you listen to Biden 
if you particularly listen to Prime Minister Sunak and Albanese, this is anything but abstract. Because what they really pointed to is that this is not only a significant change in strategic orientation, but it's going to be a significant jobs creator. Albanese has been working to sell this at home, that when you're standing up multiple new industries in a country that's never had them before, he expects that there will be like 20,000 new jobs created in Australia, which is pretty important for him to underscore considering the price tag for this is also enormous. But when I say last point here, Andrew, that this is you know actually concrete because it's going to make jobs, it's not just in Australia. We saw the release of the U.S. defense budget earlier this week, or at least the sketch of it. There's $2.4 billion more dollars in there to kind of expand shipyard production. We know that the Aussies are going to be investing in the U.S. shipyards to expand them and bring them online much more quickly. And the British themselves announced another $6 billion that they're putting towards their defense establishment with a large part earmarked towards shipyards. So strategy, yes, jobs as well. So, Charlie, this is easy for us to do in the sense that you know, the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia are three of the five eyes. So there is that level of trust. But what about the other countries in the Asia-Pacific rim? And do any of them share China's perspective? First of all, I, I wish I could agree with you that this is easy to do. But what, as we found out, even with our closest of close allies, it's actually really hard to share our like the crown jewels of American military technology. We've only done it once ever. It was with the Brits, like back in 1958. And we're still kind of moving through what laws need to shift, what rules and regulations need to shift. So it's actually quite hard to do this, even with our closest allies. But, you know, your bigger question is, uh, you know, how's the region kind of sitting on this? And you know, this is a, uh, we have to answer the question about when, right? Like when it was first announced, I think it caught everyone off guard. We know the Chinese obviously were angered, probably less so than the French who were even more angered. But similarly in Southeast Asia, you know, the Indonesians, the Malaysians had other things to say. Now, flash forward 18 months, and I think most of the governments involved in AUKUS have learned their lessons. They really were pounding the pavement to pre-brief this, to say what AUKUS is, what it's not, what transparency initiatives there will be. And that's yielded some results. So Indonesia's comment, Indonesia, which sits right to the north of Australia, matters enormously for them, very tempered in what they had to say. The Japanese and the Philippines have actually been encouraging of it. Same with the Indians, if a little bit more muted. Really interestingly, from Australia's perspective, because the Pacific Islands matter so much to them, they really believe in nuclear-free zones is Anthony Albanese flew from San Diego to Fiji. There's a new prime minister there. And he actually came out and said, you know what? We understand why they did this and we support it as well. So there's a mixed bag of how people are responding to this. But I think there's been so much work done uh, by the three countries that they're at least getting you know, tacit support for most of these initiatives, except from places like China, Russia and North Korea, which you can you know fill in the blank on what their answer would be. So you would characterize this as there's a lot more support for this than animosity towards it. You know, it's evolving. But I would say that most countries in Southeast Asia, which is kind of the most contested area around this, will say that we, we can't support this publicly. We're worried about exposing ourselves, but we totally understand from a defensive point why Australia want to do this. And then those who are more forward-leaning, like the Philippines, would say, and frankly, we're kind of glad that you're doing this for the region as well, even if we can't like shout it from the rooftops. 
All right. So speaking of the region, what are the security implications this has for the Indo-Pacific? Yeah. I mean, look, fundamentally, this is a bet by these three countries, by Australia, by the U.S. and by the U.K., that for far too long, China has thought that it's operating in a permissive security environment, right? That it can build up its own military, it can coerce others, and people will wring their hands, people will be very upset about it, but they can't fundamentally either push back in any substantive way, or they can't, even worse, give Beijing any pause to their thinking. What is the play here, what is the bet, is that by working closer together, the US, the UK and Australia are going to bring more assets online. They're going to bring more assets online quickly that the Chinese have the greatest challenge in detecting. And it's going to give pause to strategists in Beijing about what they might be able to get away with and where, right? It changes the calculations that they make if they're thinking about an invasion of Taiwan, per se, or coercing you know, others around the region. And so fundamentally, it's a bet that by bringing this all online, you're going to populate Beijing's mind, if we can call it that, with more questions. You're going to increase deterrence and that you're actually going to stabilize the region by doing it. Charlie, we've got an election coming up in two years. What if there's a change in administrations in Washington? Will AUKUS still move forward? Well, look, we, we can't answer that question for sure, but I think the odds are probably likely. And look, in in both the UK and Australia, we've already seen changes. In Australia, you actually had a change in government from kind of the center-right party to the center-left, still support it, and actually have now funded it. In the UK, we've seen a change not from party to party, but from leader to leader to leader to leader. I forget how many leaders we're up to, but they've all supported it. What we haven't seen yet is a change in the U.S. And there are lots of questions in Asia and in Australia, a very close ally of the U.S., about how reliable is the United States. Biden was asked at the press conference, if you get a more isolationist America, do you think they would still support AUKUS? And he said, yes, that's hopeful, wishful thinking, not on the first part, but on the second part. But I think what we can say is that none of the Republican candidates, the prospective candidates, have come out to say boo one way or the other about AUKUS. But we know that's got a fair amount of congressional support. We know that Australia as an ally has a wellspring of trust and support here in Washington. And frankly, and this is what I tell Australian friends all the time, is that on part, you know, when you kind of look at American politics on both the left and the right, both want America's closest allies to be stronger, sometimes for very different reasons. And if we think about those allies who we trust most, who are least concerned about, Australia fits the bill. So I, I think it sounds like this is going to be an initiative that will probably carry forward. But that is a question that always, to a certain degree, has to be left up to the vagaries and idiosyncrasies of particular leaders. It's really interesting. Charlie, the final question I have is, what challenges does AUKUS face before it can actually succeed? Oh my gosh, so many, Andrew, and I'm not going to keep you on for like the next two hours. But this is an <laughs> enormous, an enormous, uh, you know, initiative with multiple moving parts, and it's a really complex deal. There are going to be like three different, four different, depending on how you count phases of this. So you know, the the first kind of challenge that we have right in front of us is. Can all three governments provide the resources that are needed? This is hugely expensive. And you just asked, right, will it have bipartisan support? You know, beyond that, 
how quickly can our shipyards expand? They're not producing at the level they need to produce right now just to fulfill U.S. demands, no less U.S. and Australian demands. You know, part of that is you get into the details, which are really important, that we have chronic workforce shortages in these shipyards. Money will cure some of that, but not all of that. And the same is true in Australia when they're looking to kind of scale up and deliver a lot of these. You know, the other two areas that I look at all the time are export controls, right? For a long time, we have hard stops on the rules and regulations allowing the transfer of sensitive technology because during the Cold War, we didn't want to proliferate any of this stuff, right? That's really important. Now we're in a slightly different situation where with our very closest allies, we want to be able to share certain technologies with them. But the rules and regulations haven't yet kept up with that and the reforms haven't been made. And then the final one that I point to is this is a question of timing and timelines. We do not have a deterrence problem that materializes over the horizon 2040 or even 2050. We have a deterrence problem that's rearing its head today. And so the question is, how quickly can this all be brought online? Listeners, if you didn't know why we needed an Australia chair at CSIS prior to this podcast, now you do. Charlie, thanks for helping us get to the truth of the matter about AUKUS. Thanks so much for having me on, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 